we, uh, man, it's such a privilege to love the church that you work at. And if you've ever had the opportunity to work in a church, you'll, you'll understand that comment. Um, but grateful for this community. And for those who are watching online, grateful for you as well. We, uh, we want to be a church that, that loves and anticipates uh, both the teaching and the reading of God's Word as is instructive to our hearts. So I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles in front of you. If you don't have one, there's some at the back. There'll be a gift to you. Um, and for those of you who are wondering, why are we reading such large chunks of Scripture? It's because we want to give you opportunity to see it together. There's great value in that. And we're going to be uh, going through three chapters of the Bible. I'm not reading all of them in their entirety, but Exodus 7 through 10. Uh, we're actually going to be looking at the plagues of Egypt. Uh, and so if you are uh, somebody who's been anticipating this, a very, uh, very interesting part of the book, that's where we're at today. And we're going to cover them in two weeks. Uh, and I've been finding for myself as I've been studying, I would love to do a series on the plagues. Um, I don't know if anyone would join me, but I, I, we're going to try and do our best to keep it all neatly and, and tightly packed into our teaching this morning. So we'll be covering a lot. So hopefully that was time for you to grab your Bibles. Uh, I'm beginning in chapter 7, verse 14. Everything I should be reading is on the screen behind me as well. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And then you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking the water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch it out over uh, out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. And as the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Chapter 8, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs, and that they shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers 
over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up onto the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret hearts, and they made the frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me, from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I, am to lead, when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and from your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow, Moses said, Be as it as you say, so that, may no more, uh, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, and according, uh, in the houses, and according to the word of Moses, the frogs, sorry, in the courtyards and in the fields. I do know how to read. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. And when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and they were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they might serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground in which they stand. But on that day, I'll set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see each other, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know what, with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks for bearing with me. 
there is a lot, and we skipped a lot, in, in what is probably the most gripping part of the book, the, the ten plagues of Egypt. We essentially covered nine, uh, reading the first four and then jumping to the ninth, and I'll get to why we read those in particular this morning, uh, leaving the tenth for next week. And this is God pouring out his wrath on Egypt. And there's something inside of us that, that we need to clarify before we can really even uh, step up to this text and how we're to understand it, how we're to read the plagues of Egypt. And, and it's, we need to understand this, that God is not flexing here because there's a threat to him in Egypt. It, it, we, we saw this in our time together last week, and we know that this is how the entire uh, conversation that is kind of being played out in a back and forth between Moses representing the Lord and God's people and Pharaoh. When Moses steps into Pharaoh's presence and says, let my people go, and, and Pharaoh replies saying, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? And it's as if God is saying to Moses, go flick Pharaoh on the nose that he would uh, come to know me because you can walk out of his palace saying, you soon will. And then we see God uh, putting his hand heavy on Egypt through the plagues. And he's doing so in this way, and I would encourage you to read and understand the plagues in this sense, that God is again revealing himself um, in a not-so-subtle and much more heavy-handed way than he did to Moses, to the people of Egypt, that he is the I Am, the pre-existent one, the only one set apart, that he is a warrior God who fights what threatens his people, including what's inside his people, and ultimately for his people. That, that if we were to see this, um, again, there, there is nothing about Egypt or the gods of Egypt that is causing God to sweat. But they are a threat to his people. And so he rallies to the cause in his grace and in his mercy, in his covenant. Again, we've identified themes that are integral for us to read the book of Exodus. One of those themes is that God draws near to draw us out. And when God draws near, he, he causes to question all the false idols, the, the false affections, and the things that threaten us in our lives. And that's exactly what we see happening in the text. Again, God reveals himself in this way, that, hey, this stuff here that, you, that is present in Egypt, the, the ancient superpower of the world, threatens you because it evokes and it, it stokes the very sickness that is inside you that says this, I, if I serve the right gods, then I'll have the right things to live like a god myself. This, this is how we understand ancient religions that they would go and they had a pantheon that has many gods for many things that were symbolic or representative of different things that if you wanted that, you would go and sacrifice to that god. So if you wanted prosperity, go to the god of prosperity. If you wanted uh, to have great uh, and a lucrative business, you would go to the god that, that oversees probably livestock and grain and economics. And you would see that, that this is, if I serve that thing, then hopefully I'll have that in my life. That's how we understand ancient people groups in foreign countries and foreign lands. But it is the same in our hearts today. Like, consider this, and then I'll bring us home. Uh, consider how God uh, opens up the plagues. He's essentially standing up the Egyptian gods and knocking them down one after another. 
And he begins with the Nile. Now, to understand the Nile, uh, in, at, at this time, the, the Nile and the Nile Valley Basin would have been the centerpiece of prosperity and flourishing for Egypt, a best-kept secret to the reason it had its wealth and its opulence. And God goes, I can turn off that tap. I'll, I'll, I'll cause it to be blood, the, a symbol of death. And, and not only that, it, it will stink It'll reek of the stench of death. And it won't just stay in its banks, but it will creep into the land as well. As you, did you not read that in the text as the frogs come out into your, and notice the projection into your house, into your living room, into your bedroom, into your bed, into your oven, into your food, crawling up all over you? Like, I hope you're comfortable with frogs. It's the picture of, like, death is creeping over you. Because what? When, when, when there is reprieve, they die. And they, like, have to scoop them up in heaps that all of Egypt would have reeked of the smell of death. And you, and you have to go, what's happening here? Um, the gods of the Nile were the gods that were responsible for flourishing and prosperity and happiness. And what's going to take those things away more quickly than, than the thing that you thought would bring you life turns into death? God is very clearly saying, you know what, you, you, you think that you can put your affections and your hope into that, watch as I turn that off. And then as we move forward, we see gnats and flies. I mean, th this should resonate with us as Albertans because we've got like a, a few short weeks of the year before the mosquitoes arrive. And then we retreat to our homes and, our, and all that nice patio furniture that we bought we don't use. Why? Because they, those things can ruin any ease or comfort that was in the day. And what God is doing is like the gods of comfort, the gods of ease, the gods of, of prosperity. I will take that away. I mean, when you consider, and, and why do we know anything about Egypt if not because it was so opulent and, and wealthy and powerful that we look at their ruins and go, wow, this must have been an incredible civilization. Their kings were buried with more treasures than our countries would know. And that's just spending change for them because there was so much left over for generations and generations. And yet God's like, I can take that away. You will not be reclining and relaxing when you are covered in swarms of gnats and flies. And then fast forward, we, we have plagues that we didn't read about, but we, had, we see plagues of, uh, of pestilence on the land where livestock are growing sick and dying. We, we, we see hail that is falling and crushing men and beast alike and then burning on the ground. Locusts which cover the ground and eat every green thing. Is this not God saying, if you want to serve the God of economy, I can take that away. I mean, just as a sidebar, but just to help draw the connection, the, the Egyptian god that was responsible for the production of grain and livestock was in the form of a human body with a bull's head. And it was in worship to that god that you would receive uh, an abundant harvest and, and healthy livestock. And God's like, I can wipe that out. It, 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 fast forward 
I mean, spoiler alert, but fast forward to when the people go to the uh, mountain of God at Sinai and, and, and Moses tarries on the mountain and their hearts grow troubled and, and weary that they say to Aaron, his brother, um, take our riches that we, by God's grace, were given as spoils from Egypt. Take our, our riches and make a golden calf because it's the thing that we got, livestock and wealth and numbers that we will have our confidences that we were uh, saved from Egypt and we will be saved moving forward. It's no coincidence that when you make investments that you think are going to increase, we call it a bull market. Our, our hearts do this. If I have this thing, I'll be okay and I know I, I am okay and I know I'll be okay. There's something inside of us as we, as we read this, we, we try to distance ourselves and we kind of think, isn't it silly that, that foreign people groups and ancient people groups took raw materials, threw it into an oven and out came an image that they go, that's the thing that saves me. And yet, this is what we do. Is it not your status, your reputation, your company, your estate, your relationships, your, your family, I could go on and on, that you say, because I have this, I'm okay and will be okay. And God in His grace, not His cruelty. In His kindness, not His hardship, says that can easily be removed and taken from you. It is an illusion of your security, your comfort, your prosperity and ease. These are not the things that I have for you. Listen, I, I, I would say, I would go further to say this. It, it was more than just the hardship of Egypt that was a threat to God's people, but it's opulence as well. And I, and I would state my case this way. We know as, and, and again, this is the second book of five that we're meant to read these together. So just keep reading in your Bibles and you'll see after their deliverance, they're going to start looking over their shoulders as they walk amongst a wilderness that has no buildings, has no Nile River, has no grandeur. And they're going to say, you know, Egypt wasn't so bad. They'll actually long for it. They'll plead for it. And as a reader, you read that and you, and you have to go, are you crazy? How could you? You were slaves. You were treated like vermin. But Egypt in all of its trappings calls out to our hearts. Listen, if I could draw this to home for us. There is a threat outside of us of a promise that is a false one, but a promise like sirens calling us to collide on the rocks that beckons our hearts and we want to hear it because the threat isn't just the things outside us, it's the threat that's inside us as well. Our hearts are bent towards destruction to want those things. I mean, we, we want to build up ease, prosperity, comfort, economy, we want to be the, the envied nation among all nations. We want to be Egypt, the superpower. And yet, what we see here is, and I'll, I'll make this in a few points, God is drawing near to draw us out. You'll, you'll notice this in chapter 8, verse 25. We didn't read this for the sake of time, but you'll notice multiple times in the text that, that as Moses and Pharaoh have this back and forth, uh, Pharaoh does a bit of kind of compromise bargaining. And one of the times he says to him, why, Moses, why don't, why don't you just sacrifice to God here? 
In other words, why don't you just follow your God in our land? You know, can't, can't, can't you have both? It's important that we, we hang on that for a moment because this is what our culture wants you to believe and this is what we want to believe ourselves. Can I just be a devout follower of Jesus and have all the things that this world promises me too? You know, comfort, ease, pleasure, security, and yet, you know, still be a good follower of Christ. And, and Jesus promises this. Um, no, it's going to be hard. But take heart. I'm bigger than the world. Listen, I, I, I got to say this, and an apology at the front, because I, I, I know there are people watching online, and I love them dearly, but I am deeply troubled for our Western Canadian church that says, you know what, I have found that I can follow Jesus, and it's so easy. I don't even have to talk to anyone. I can stay home. I, I can press pause and watch it later, and if I don't watch it, the pastor will never know. That is something lulling you into a deep and demonic lullaby that will ultimately be a death to your soul. There are three legs of the stool that will help you grow in faith. And, and I apologize for the Western church. We've been really bad at these. One is knowledge. You need to know your Bibles. I'm reading large portions of the text to whet your appetite, but not to go, this is satisfactory for the week. You need to know your Bibles. You need to share your faith. If this is the most important thing that you possibly could have and you understand the abundance of God's grace, you're going to be like, who else wants this? Like, I'm okay if you're the awkward people in your families and workplaces because it's brimming over with passion. That's what an evangelist is. If you've ever gone on a great diet, don't you tell all your friends? You're an evangelist for whatever it is. And by the way, that we've had so many, you'll find out later, oh, it didn't work. No big deal. You have the one thing that works, not for weight loss, but for, for life and life to the full. And yet we kind of go, I don't know. So you have to have knowledge. You have to share. And the last is this. You have to obey. And this is where we, we've been so soft. When God's word smacks us in the face and we go, ah, I'll think about it. Or just pass over that page. Or I'll go find a teacher online who allows me to do that, and then I don't have to obey. This church is how we grow. And so when Pharaoh says, you know what, you can be faithful to God, just do it here. Moses replies, by no means. We will be a stench to you, and we'll be a stench to our God. There is no middle ground. You see, we... We lose track of this because we have such an anemic understanding of love. We think love is simply accepting and, and putting up with whatever it is that we hear from our friends or neighbors or even the stuff that kind of percolates outside of us. It's just, you know, oh, that's okay. Love pours itself out in wrath when the thing that we love is threatened. And this is, it's... See, if you've had a hard time reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament, here's how you do the two. Because he's a God of love and he looks at his people and they're under threat from things outside and things within. He pours out wrath. Did you not notice? And this is why I read the first four plagues. The first three are experienced by Israel and Egypt alike. And, and there's something inside of you that... That probably doesn't sit right. Isn't God angry at Egypt? 
and, and kind to his people. Israel is not spared because they are more deserving. Israel is spared because God has chosen his people. And he's covenanted with them. He says, I'll be yours and you'll be mine. It is nothing of anything they bring to the table. And if you want proof text, just keep reading. You'll be pretty disappointed in them as a group. God in his grace says, no, 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 I pour out my wrath because there's a thing in you that's killing you and we need to kill it. I would encourage you, if you struggle with your sin nature, this idea that we are in this truth, that we are, we are bent towards our own destruction, I, I would encourage you in this way. Well, well, great, you make great company with every single follower of Christ from uh, the beginning of the church till now and ultimately when we stand before the Lord in glory because it says in Scripture that, that we wrestle with our, our flesh and if you are uh, a recipient of Jesus, you are born in the Spirit and with the Spirit. And let me encourage you this way. If you do the things you don't want to do but, and, and, and want to do the things that you struggle with, you are leaning towards the Spirit and one day the sinful nature, the, the flesh will be burned away. And only the Spirit remains. But if your heart is hard, then one day there's no Spirit. And God in His grace, some of you struggle as you read this, it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Like That seems unfair. Essentially what God is doing, He's saying, you, you want that? I'll give it to you. You want to be king? You want to think that you are above and, and greater than all things? Then here you go. And we see that in, in chapter 8, verse 15. I read this. It says, When the Pharaoh saw that there was respite, a reprieve in the land, he hardened his heart and would not listen. Essentially, it was this. When, when Pharaoh, for just a moment, was able to say, no, 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 I'm the master of, of my fate. I am the architect of my life. It is my word which goes out in Egypt and everyone listens to it. Then his heart grew hardened because he said, no, I'm God and God you're not. And God in his justice, not his cruelty, goes, okay, if you want that, go. And this is, this is the cry of God's word and why you need to read it for yourself. That we would not have a hard heart. And in Hebrews 3 verse 15 it says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. God fights that which threatens us and fights that which is a threat within us because he wants us to have a soft heart. Don't, don't harden yourself towards him. And ultimately he fights for us and sometimes he does so by fighting with us. Again, the tension of this is God, God doesn't stand up for Israel because they're more deserving. He does so because he's chosen them as his people. From the fourth plague onward, he says, I'll make a distinction that where there is death in the land, there will be life with my people. Where there is darkness, there will be light. Where there was plague, there will be prosperity. And the, the distinction is this. It, it, it's not their goodness. It's mine. If you look at the ninth plague, which we read together in chapter 10, a plague of darkness. 
I mean, let that sit with you for a moment. In all of Egypt, pitch black, and it says a darkness, a darkness that can be felt. In the Hebrew, that word felt would be best translated, perhaps a little clunky and awkward in our English translation, that, that would touch you all over. In other words, hold you fast. This is a darkness that, that kind of grips you to the core. And yet we're God's people where there's light. There's life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I am life. I am the I am. Those who have me do not walk in darkness. If, if I could help this kind of land for you, if we were to fast forward, we, we notice this. This movement in the biblical story is this, of God who plucks a man out of obscurity, he and his wife in old age, Abraham and Sarah, and he says, I will be yours and you will be mine and all those who come behind you, I will remain faithful to this promise. So that when Moses can stand before Pharaoh, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses and his people, he gives them light and life. And I know some of you, as we read the text, as we get into this, you, you're, you're so curious on, on this pattern we see of, well, Moses comes out, banters with Pharaoh, plague, magicians paraded out, they mimic it, Pharaoh's heart is hard, and you're like, what's that? There is real darkness. There's real demonic power in the world. In fact, if you're in your 20s and 30s, you probably know this firsthand because the most fast-growing spiritual interest in Canada is that of the occult and paganism, where I know through interactions with many young people that they are dabbling into real darkness looking for real power. And what I keep hearing is simply this, that we found a power that we do not understand, but we also found empty promises and no Savior to be found. You can understand what is a very real and dark thing in this really tangible way that every time the magicians are paraded out and they can do the thing that was just done until they couldn't and they go, oh, that's real power. That's the finger of God. It's of course darkness can produce more darkness. Of course evil can, can produce more destruction, but it can't take it back. Otherwise, Pharaoh would, would run to his magicians and be guys like, the Nile's blood. Clean it up. And they're like, we, we only turned things into blood. Man, we, didn't, we didn't get that class. There's frogs everywhere. Well, we don't know what to do. But, but God is the only one who draws it back. The only one who delivers. The only one who saves. And so I have to ask you this as we prepare our hearts to, to approach the Lord's table. What darkness assails you? What empty promises are you clinging to? Because if I've learned one thing, and arguably speaking, I, I'm a slow learner, so as a parent, I know this to be true. The most foundational word that I've given to the development of my children is no. That I, that I tell them so many times, no, that's not for your, for your good, not for your flourishing. So no, no, you'll get hurt. No, you can't do that right now. No, you're not old enough. No. And, and if, you, if you're a parent, you know that that's, that never lands on welcoming ears, does it? 
Like, you know, thank you, Father, for your wisdom and your guidance. You're so good to me. It's always a, a scowl or a pulling away, or if you're my one daughter, you don't love me. And yet this is how God moves towards his people in discipleship. He says, no, you don't know how this is a threat to you, a threat inside of you. And I have to wrestle with you to say no. But when he draws near, he says, come. You don't know how to live, so watch me. And through the filling of his spirit, he says, now go. You have enough of me imparted in you that you're going to do okay. This is what we receive in Christ. You know, we don't know how to do life without him because life doesn't exist without him. We are stumbling blind in the darkness all the while thinking, I know the way. And so as we approach the Lord's table, I want to ask you this. What darkness is there in your life that you have to say, Lord, free me? What empty promises have you received saying, God, I, I, I thought that would make my life fuller and more robust, and it's been, it's been empty. There's been no Savior. Would you be my Savior? So I'm going to pray, and after I pray, we're going to immediately go to the Lord's table together. So this is a time of self-examination. For those of you who are in Christ, that means you've, uh, at some point in your life, even this morning, said, Jesus, I've made a mess of my life, and that's my fault. But by your grace and your mercy, the Puritans called it his severe mercies when he allowed hardships in our life to actually cultivate obedience and throw us off the ship into cold water just to give enough clarity that we would see we're going adrift. Lord, would you give that to me in my life so that I would move back on course towards you because you do not drift from us. You draw near. That you'd spend that time with him. So let me pray. And you can have your elements ready as we will come to the table together. So, Father, I thank you, Jesus, that you have fought for us, even unto death, death on a cross. That you fought with us in your grace, as we are culpable to those who hung you on the cross, and yet you said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. That you fought for us, that it was our price to pay, and yet you went willingly and said, I'll pay it for you. And Lord, it's those two images that give us great celebration and great pause and heartache that we come before you to your table, Lord, and this is a a picture of your ongoing and enduring promise for your people. That you said of the elements, you said, this is a new covenant. This promise fills all the old and it points to the, the new and everlasting, which is I'm yours and you're mine. And so Jesus, as we receive, we receive to say once again, Lord, I am yours and you are mine. Forgive me when I've lived contrary to that. Thank you, Jesus, that you refresh and remind me that there's nothing better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.